Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Unfortunate story about a bear and a person that was attacked coming, just, just happened recently in the Okanagan community of Soyuz uh, in British Columbia. It's down close towards the Canada-U.S. border. So a lady was outside with her daughter and dog, and a black bear just all of a sudden came out of nowhere and jumped up on a retaining wall in front of the lady and her daughter and dog. It startled them. It startled the dog. It startled the bear. And immediately the bear um, or the, sorry, the dog engaged the bear and started barking at it, obviously a protective thing right close to its people. The bear went into a defensive mode as well. Uh, I assume attacked the dog, had a hold of the dog, was kind of shaking it a little bit. The woman yelled for her daughter to run in the house. Uh, the woman threw her wine glass at the bear and then the bear reared up and took some swipes at her. So this all sounded like it was happening very close. And she got a couple of um, like scratch slashes on what looks like the sides of her face on her cheek. So it, the the bear had let go of the dog and then and then swiped at at the lady. Then. After that happened, the, the lady was knocked down. Uh, the dog sort of got involved again, barked at the bear, chased it. The bear went up a tree. Everybody went into the house. The bear came down out of the tree and left. When conservation officers uh, arrived, the bear uh, was bleeding, uh, I guess, fairly well. I don't know from like that maybe the dog had a hold of it or if it was cut by the glass. 
the accounts that I read didn't really say. Anyways, the conservation officers were able to trail, uh, follow the blood trail and found uh, the bear, a sow down, um, I guess, along a park or a beach area. It had two cubs. Um, it had been a bear that had been around the community uh, for a bit, a uh, bit, uh, I guess, habituated to garbage and this attack. And so the conservation officers killed the sow as well as both of her cubs, uh, citing that taking them to sending them to the rehabilitation facility was probably not the best idea given their history and their habituation. So. Gosh, a really, really unfortunate story for everybody here. Luckily, the lady was okay. The dog was okay. Three bears died, uh, in, including two young of the year cubs uh, out of this thing, which all seems to have been precipitated uh, by the fact that this was just, you know, uh, a freak encounter of just dog, bear, just all of a sudden, boom, there they are in front of each other. Like you can kind of imagine a bear going along and then just jump up on a retaining wall and be like, holy shit, there's dogs and stuff right in front of me, right? And it's got cubs. So of course, you know, it would have been immediately thrown into a, a defensive protective kind of mode doing its job as a mother uh, bear would paid the ultimate price for what it did in defending uh, its cub. The bottom line here, as I've covered these stories, lots and lots across Canada, these bears are in our communities because of attractants, garbage, unsecured garbage, pet food, bird feeders, uh, deer feeders, uh, as well as fruits, fruit trees, gardens like just all that kind of stuff so it's unfortunate that uh, this is still going on this is probably going to raise the ire of the groups that are always on the bc conservation officers service for having to put down bears but they're the services conservation officer services primary mandate is uh, protecting the public and you have a animal, large carnivore. It's classified under the Wildlife Act in BC as a dangerous wildlife, black bear, grizzly bear, cougar, uh, wolves, and coyotes are all classified as dangerous wildlife. It did attack somebody, so, you know, they can't really, you know, leave, leave that situation uh, unattended because the next time could be a child uh, that wouldn't fare so well as as being protected by uh, by a mother or father and and having to deal with a bear in that situation by itself and you know not being uh, strong enough to punch or kick back or whatever. So super unfortunate story uh, in British Columbia with with this bear attack. Eh, I mean, attack is not even the right word. That the account that I read, the lady who was scratched, as I recall, was kind of not really saying like attack, but just kind of like the bear, like, you know, swat at her a couple of times. And just the, the whole situation was, was just unfortunate where everybody unexpectedly bumped into each other. In Calgary, Alberta, at the airport, 
a man was caught and fined for bringing the meat of a crocodile into Canada. So at customs, he did not declare that he had any food or animal products. Uh, wildlife officials at the border did a search and found the meat of this crocodile. They took samples of the meat and sent it away to their lab and they were actually able to identify the species. And it came from the African dwarf crocodile, which is listed as a threatened species. So the individual was fined $7,500 for bringing the meat of a threatened crocodile into Canada. So this is not a case of not retaining all edible portions of your crocodile, neck and rib meat included. This is actually a charge for bringing a threatened uh, endangered species into the country and failing to declare it at the border. So uh, if you are out in a boat and you do happen to legally harvest a crocodile and you're required to bring in all edible portions of the meat, including rib and neck meat, then make sure you do that so I'm not covering you on a news story. Actually, if you're from Canada and you do harvest a crocodile legally, you will probably be on this show and I'll be talking about the story. So, uh, weird one. Gosh, you know, you think about all those Environment Canada wildlife officials and the stuff that they must come across, um, you know, in their jobs, things, people trying to get into the, into the country, you know, animals from the illicit wildlife trade. I recently saw a story, this was down in the United States, but somebody had like hundreds of monkey skulls that were cleaned up that they were trying to smuggle into the United States, uh, I guess, to sell to collectors. I don't know if collectors want actual monkey skulls or if they just kind of think it's a cool thing because it looks like a little human skull or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, that was a pretty big bust about a week ago down uh, in, in the U.S., so uh, still in Alberta, but in Banff National Park, uh, Parks Canada uh, undertook uh, the second operation of poisoning a lake in the National Park, uh, Margaret Lake. They used the chemical rhodanone, which is an extractive from a plant out of the Amazon, I believe, out of the tropics that when crushed and put into the water, gets in and prevents fish from taking in oxygen, um, makes them float, kills them. So anyways, what they were doing in the park is they were killing thousands of non-native fish that were in the, the, the some high elevation lakes. They've been doing it on a number of lakes for a while, um, brook trout. And they want to get rid of the brook trout so that they can reintroduce um, West Slope cutthroat which is the native trout to both the east and west slope of the Rocky Mountains in Western Canada. In Alberta, the west slope cutthroat were once found uh, quite extensively across the Old Man and Bow uh, River watersheds. But over the last hundred years, uh, they've declined and they only occupy about 10% of their historical range in Alberta. So that's the native trout of Alberta. It is also the native trout species along with um, 
uh, bull trout, which is a char. It's our only native trout species uh, on both sides of the Rockies here. Way worse off in Alberta than than we have uh, here in southeastern BC. So the plan is is to get rid of these brook trout because if the brook trout are there, they can actually breed and affect the genetics of West Slope cutthroat. Uh, same with rainbows, and they can um, then outcompete the cutthroat, the native cutthroat. So the plan was is that they're getting rid of uh, the brook trout in the national parks. They've been doing a number of lakes. I think they're up to like five lakes in Banff National Park where they've done this so that they can um, reintroduce uh, the West Slope cutthroat. Uh, they have done some reintroductions in some of the other alpine lakes uh, as well, but um, this is a recent event. I believe Margaret Lake, like I said, it was the second go round of using the chemical rhodanone um, to get rid of the, the brook trout out of the lake. So they, they go in, they poison it, uh, then they neutralize it, and then they kind of have to like collect all the fish, see how many they got, and then monitor if they've missed fish, then they got to go in again. You can appreciate if this is your job and you're trying to do this. If you don't get all of the fish, then 10 years down the road, you're back to having thousands of, of brook trout that you don't want. So the crazy part about this story is I've read some of the really early history on Banff National Park. In fact, its original name was Rocky Mountain Park. It's Canada's oldest and first national park. It was originally uh, established as a tourist destination for the, the railroad company to bring tourists from Eastern Canada and Europe. You know, they were coming into Eastern Canada and then coming across the country on rail. It was the big, big business um, happening, happening then. That's when they developed uh, a bunch of stuff in and around Banff. They developed the hot springs. They built the, um, the big CP hotel. If you've ever built, been there, the big, you know, huge castle like hotel that's, that's there. So one of the things that they were doing back then in the early 1900s is this was just the flavor of the day is because the Europeans were the main tourism market. So Oddly enough, they wanted to come to see the Rocky Mountains, but they wanted a little piece of Europe with them while they were over here. So they wanted to be able to fly fish in the Rocky Mountains for species that they were familiar with, which was trout species uh, being different types of brook trout, which are, I believe, native in Europe, but they're not uh, here. There's places where they're native down in the uh, U.S., but not uh, and in Eastern Canada, brook trout are native, but not uh, here in the West in the Rocky Mountains. So, so Parks Canada was the one that put these fish in the lakes and the streams in the national park because that was, they were sort of building like a Disneyland, right? Like there was none of this, you know, sort of ecosystem approach. It was like, it was a Disneyland that they were building in the Rocky Mountains and it was made for tourists. It still is for tourists, in my opinion. Talking to fish biologists uh, a number of years ago, Parks Canada didn't just do these fish introductions in the national parks for whatever reason, like way back in the early 1900s, they were a little bit rogue from what I understand. And they were flying and dumping fish like um, um, 
Yellowstone cutthroat. Um, there's another species of, of cutthroat. Um, some other species of rainbows, I believe, the brook trout. They were just kind of putting them in lakes here, there, and everywhere in southern Alberta and southern British Columbia. So there's these little, and I fished one lake in southern BC along the U.S. border that's got Yellowstone cutthroat in it. And and I've heard stories of biologists saying, oh, this little lake over here, and we think these ones up in the mountains have got um these other exotic species of, of trout in there because Parks Canada just put them up there. No records, no documentation. It was just people from Parks Canada putting fish places. So kind of weird. So now here we are, you know, like decades and decades later where this is not an appropriate thing to have these non-native species because we're seeing the reper repercussions of them out competing uh, West Slope cutthroat, which the West Slope cutthroat in Alberta are not threatened. Um, they're th threatened species provincially and federally, not because of like the brook trout that were introduced in the national parks. It's played a bit of a range, but mostly it's been uh, habitat loss, dams on the old man and, and that sort of thing uh, in in uh, southern Alberta that's that's impacted. But when they can't occupy some of their historical range because there is brook trout in there. That's Parks Canada's mandate is to be a little bit more ecologically mindful. Uh, and so they're getting rid of, getting rid of the brook trout. So uh, crazy kind of story, but it's like, it, it makes me wonder like, what are we doing today in conservation? Or in a hundred years from now, folks are going to be like, what the hell were they thinking doing X or doing Y or planting this vegetation or moving these species? Now we got to go fix it and get rid of them. Uh, I have a similar uh, scenario where I live in Southern uh, British Columbia with bass. Um, so largemouth bass are in lakes clear across the Southern part of BC over into the Okanagan because they were put there by government fish biologists way back in the forties and fifties. And, uh, that was just the thing to do the old days of hook and bullet. Uh, that's what they were doing in the U S that's what they were doing up here for sportsmen. Uh, bass could live in a lot of low oxygen environments. Now they're identified as a, you know, an invasive species and, um, perch are here as well in Southern British Columbia, cold ice fish them, but the biologists don't like them being around. And it's just kind of a, another one of those examples where they did something, you know, back in the forties and now they have actually poisoned some lakes just down the road from me that had perch in it. They didn't reintroduce West Slope cutthroat. They just got rid of the perch. Uh, and then just left the lake vacant with no fish in it at all. So yeah, crazy kind of crazy history, crazy history of, you know, what was thought to be conservation, hook and bullet sportsman type stuff, you know, with the fish, a little bit with animals, um, you know, the fallow deer story, some different things like that. Some uh, turkeys have been, you know, moved around pheasants, chuckar, quail. Uh, these are all species that I know of in, in our part of the, the world in BC that were kind of moved and transplanted under that hook and bullet type uh, management philosophy. And 
now they're just seen as a pest that uh, in cases like this in Banff National Park where they're actively going in and get rid of them. So interesting book if you want to read about this sort of idea of the invasive species and, you know, what they do and what they might not be doing in ecosystems. There's an author called Fred Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, I believe, wrote a book uh, quite a few years ago. I've read it. Quite interesting called um, The New Wild. The subtitle, if I remember, is How Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation or something like that. So kind of talks about invasive species in different ecosystems in a little bit of a different tone, uh, kind of talking about where they've actually provided benefits to people or in ecosystems and where they may actually be filling ecological niches from species, native species that have disappeared from these ecosystems. So um, yeah, if you're into this whole invasive species thing, take a look at that. A couple years ago, I covered this story about some crab, commercial crab fishermen off the coast of BC that were actually setting crab traps in American waters, uh, in and around uh, an area called Boundary Bay. They um, were caught, actually, I think it was a diver who was down doing something on the bottom of the, of the ocean, saw these traps. And anyways, one thing led to another and uh, Canada and the Americans started to investigate and found that Canadian commercial fishermen were going down and setting these crab traps in U.S. waters. So they were caught uh, and charged, and four men were recently um, collectively charged $287,000 for doing this, and they were had restrictions put on their commercial fishing license that they weren't allowed to set traps in the first two weeks of the upcoming fishing seasons, I think for the next two years, if I remember. <clears throat> I know what you're thinking. Should be just completely have their commercial licenses revoked. You know, you know if that's what you want to do is uh, you want to be poaching as a commercial fisherman, then you should just have, have your licenses revoked. I hear people say the same thing about, you know, hunting and fishing. However, it was kind of interesting where the courts look at this and say, yes, you've pled guilty, you know, you've been charged, convicted, here's your fines, here's the restrictions to punish you. But it's like the courts don't go far enough to then destroy the livelihood of the individuals. They, they make life rough for you, <clears throat> but in time you can still go back or you can continue to make a living off of off of commercial fishing if that if that's what you're doing so i, I know that's not going to sit well with a lot of people it's just like what you know they should be just banned from you know commercial fishing altogether i've covered other stories on this where commercial fishermen on the west coast were caught and charged with things but under federal fisheries laws as i understand it they can go to other commercial fishing fishing zones in Canada and open up shop and get commercial licenses and and away they go. They're they're not 
hampered by the fact that they've had federal fisheries charges in one marine zone and they can go to another marine zone and pick up commercial licenses and away they go sort of unfettered. So I know when it comes to commercial fishing and the scale and the magnitude generally of, you know, what they're poaching or over harvesting and the sensitivity of some of these marine stocks, you kind of wonder, you know, should the hammer be a bit heavy and have boats and stuff seized and licenses revoked and lifetime bans or, you know, whatever put on, on fishermen. Maybe I'll come across a story where maybe, you know, about one, you can let me know, uh, you know, when people start to be like repeat offenders, um, that things get more and more severe and courts generally go after licenses, uh, and, and all out bans, we see it in hunting or whatever, like, you know, <clears throat> one, five, 10 year, uh, prohibitions on having a funding hunting license or being in possession of a firearm or, or whatever. So $287,000, most of that was levied against the two masters of the commercial fishing ships that had the licenses. So. Uh, recently in, uh, British Columbia, a string of coyote attacks, uh, took place. I believe it was like, let's see here. Six coyote attacks happened on a Thursday. This was, I think late August, early September, six attacks on a Thursday, one occurred Friday and two more on a Monday. It was in the mission area of the lower mainland, uh, just outside of the Vancouver area down on the, on the coast, BC coast there. And they, conservation officers came in. They think they had it narrowed down to that. It was because of the geographic area that it was happened. They were suspecting it was one coyote. So they were looking for a coyote. Uh, and in, one individual, <clears throat> I don't know if they could, you know, discern one from the other, the other than just a coyote in a area and, and its behavior. The report I read ended up, um, reporting the conservation officers ended up seeing multiple coyotes <clears throat> in the general geographic area that were kind of all exhibiting the same behavior. I don't know what that means, whether they were aggressive or approaching people or just not wary of, you know, when they saw people, conservation officers ended up killing one coyote in the area where these attacks took place. But, uh, haven't heard that there's been more attacks, uh, since then. So I don't know what it was, what was up. If that was the one coyote, uh, what would have provoked it? The organization Coyote Watch Canada, uh, made a statement that was in the story I read that kind of said like, you know, if people are feeding them, this, you know, this is what happens, but there wasn't anything from the BC conservation officer service that said, you know, the people that were attacked were in the process of feeding the animals, or if they knew these animals were being fed and that precipitated the attacks that definitely seemed to be behind the attacks that happened in Stanley park. A couple of um, December, Januarys ago, there was quite a few, uh, quite a string of them <clears throat> there, but people were feeding them for sure. So I don't know what, you know, I don't know enough about this to know, like if they're being fed, <clears throat> what then leads them to then attacking people? You know, is it the, 
you know, where they approach people and then they don't get a sandwich. So then they, about, they bite the person it, to me, it almost sounds like, cause they're dogs and knowing dogs, it's more like they're, <clears throat> they're scared. They're protecting. They don't want you there, you know? So that's when a dog bites you, right? Like, it's like you're sticking your hand out and you're a stranger and, and, um, or you're coming into it, you know, the mailman coming into your yard kind of thing and, and the dogs being protective of its domain. So it'd be really interesting to kind of <clears throat> try to learn a little bit more about what experts know about the psychology of, of coyotes. Cause man, all the ones I see are just, you know, they see you. We saw one goose hunting the other day and. Curtis's dog, Sage, in the lay down blind, saw it first and started barking at it. And I think the coyote was going to run in and jump on one of our goose decoys and then saw the dog barking and it just took off. You know, like it's just, is it more wild, wild because of that? And they're different in the urban areas. <clears throat> you know, I don't know, but uh, maybe it's just the probability of, you know, they're in a fairly confined area in urban areas and more people and like the black bear they unexpectedly bump into a person and you know they they bite and run away because of a, a you know a defensive type act now on the topic of coyotes biting people um well not really biting people but an impact of coyotes living near people i covered this story <clears throat> i think like a year or more ago about a disease in the coyote population in Alberta that's being transferred, transmitted into humans. So there is a disease, it is a, a little worm parasite called aviolar echnococcosis, A-E, echnococcosis, aviolar Echnococcosis, coxiosis, coxiosis. That's how you pronounce it. <laughs> oh, these Latin names. Alveolar echnococcosis, AE for short. So it's an infection that's caused um, by a little parasite. Um, it's got a Latin name too. And it's carried by the canines, coyotes, dogs, and foxes. Uh, it is a a member of the tapeworm family. Uh, it was common in Europe and it was first found in wildlife in Western Canada not that long ago, 2012. Just after it was discovered being in Western Canada, there was the first case of that worm parasite being found in a person in rural Alberta. Since 2012, 30 people in Alberta um, have been diagnosed with with carrying the parasite from uh, the AE infection that is coming from coyotes. What it does, um, and and then there's been so there's been 30 cases since 2012, but a dozen of those cases have just been in the last three years in Alberta. So Alberta is like a hotspot for people being infected with this disease. There's been four cases in Ontario since 2017 and a couple cases in Saskatchewan and BC. But for whatever reason, Alberta is like, um, 
an epicenter. About two-thirds of the people diagnosed in Alberta that have the AE tapeworm uh, that come from coyotes are people that live in rural areas, and the rest of the remaining third of the people uh, come from the Edmonton area. So the coyotes have this AE worm, uh, and it's passed, the eggs get passed in their stool. Dogs come across coyote poop. They either sniff it, touch it, lick it, whatever. They get an egg, and then it goes into its life cycle in the dog. The dogs are in close contact with humans, and then the same thing, it gets transmitted to the humans. This tapeworm gets into your bloodstream, then it eventually finds its way into your liver, and it forms a massive mass in like a big baseball thing in your liver. It starts to restrict blood flow and function of your liver. Generally, people don't know that they have it. Um, not a lot of symptoms, but most people that have been undergoing some kind of a scan for something else with their doctor, they've detected this big mass, done the things and found out that they had contracted this uh, AE tapeworm from uh, a dog, which came from a coyote. Now, since I first covered the story, uh, I don't think I'd covered this before, but there have been some researchers looking into this and they were wondering, um, like, what's happening with urban coyotes uh, to be infected with this thing in and around the Edmonton area. Basically, what they were able to prove is the prevalence rates of AE is higher in younger coyotes and not older coyotes because younger coyotes don't have a strong immune system like older coyotes and coyotes and rodents that are attracted to garbage and compost is where they are getting this parasite and so the coyotes are either eating garbage and compost not living a healthy lifestyle and they're getting the parasite or the rodents are getting the parasites from garbage and compost, and then the coyotes that are attracted there because of the rodents are eating infected rodents, uh, and then getting um, getting into them. Then again, they're pooping it out, and the dogs, dog walkers, come across it, and so on and so on gets into the people that way. So um, Alberta's chief medical officer has said hand washing washing well-picked foods before eating them, keeping pets clean, and preventing uh, your pets from eating rodents are some of the best prevention strategies. Uh, keeping your pets away from coyote poop is another another way of uh, doing it, I guess. So again, uh, routine worming, you know, your dogs, mine always like to eat deer and elk poop, so we're always giving them um, deworming pills on a regular basis. They can get tapeworms from that as well. So on which we can end up with as well from our dog. So this mass in the liver, if left undetected, uh, if I recall previous stories I've read on this can be fatal to people. So it is pretty serious, serious. The interesting part about this whole thing is the, the prevalence of this in Alberta. Uh, it's quite strange how it's gone from Europe um, and and found its home um, with the most amount of um, patients coming from Alberta, from the Edmonton area, 
uh, all the way from Europe to the, you know, the Edmonton area. It, it's, it's quite interesting. I, two concerns here, points why I wanted to cover this story is, so dogs and people vacationing, going to Edmonton to vision, visit relatives, your dog picks it up, and then boom, you go back to uh, Vancouver where you live. Your dog becomes the vector that's moving, potentially moving this, this AE parasite around the country. It's not likely that coyotes are migrating that far. I would assume that this thing is going to find its way around the, the, the country into other coyote populations because of people traveling with their dogs, picking it up that way. Uh, it also makes me think about our whole relationship with coyotes in and around urban areas, especially urban areas. They're always going to be in uh, rural areas. And yes, there is a risk there. Urban areas tend to be the ones where, you know, people are all against lethal removal of coyotes, you know, trapping. Um, there was like, uh, there was some removed from Stanley Park a couple of years ago and there was like a candlelight vigil for the coyote that the conservation officers trapped and removed that had, had attacked some people. So different culture in the urban areas. Uh, I think if you're from a rural area or you're a hunter or you're a trapper, or you're listening to this, you're probably kind of coming up with the same idea as me that these things have the potential to transfer a disease that could be fatal to people. Uh, it, it's a, from what I understand, if you get it, it's a lifelong thing, sort of like, um, um, the parasites that you can get from uh, trichinosis from bears and stuff like it's always in you. Like, I don't think you actually ever get rid of it. You're always on medications, uh, that sort of thing. And you're probably thinking what I am, there should just be a regular trapping program, you know, to keep, you know, basically to keep these coyotes out of the urban areas rather than this whole concept of, well, we'll coexist with them. Don't feed them, you know, keep your distance, all this kind of stuff, which is one side. Uh, I can understand like securing the attractants, the garbage, doing all that sort of stuff uh, as well. But, you know, there, there's a little bit of me, and I think I've talked about this before with the deer, you know, humans are a species of animals that its habitat are mostly urban dwellings or are small yards. Like any other animal we have, we're biologically driven to protect our habitat, to protect our home range, to protect our denning areas <clears throat> where our young are. Uh, and we will do that like any other wild animal. In some respects, <clears throat> I do think it's better off for people and wildlife that they're kept separate. <clears throat> Deer shouldn't be living in urban areas. Coyotes shouldn't be living in urban areas. If we have to capture and translocate, or if we have to lethally remove them, um, just like wolves might kill a, you know, uh, another pack that comes into their territory for protection, or you know, those those sorts of <clears throat> things where animals are are territorial, um, it's for the protection of themselves. I don't think we're ever going to see that sort of thing uh, in urban areas, especially, you know, communities as large as Vancouver and Edmonton and Toronto and stuff to have active trapping programs. Uh, generally, anytime they try to do it, if there's a big public opposition to it and, and kind of turns into, 
bit of a shit show uh, when it comes to trying to remove these uh, animals. But I don't know. I just, a lot of me thinks it'd be better off just that animals learn like you don't. It's not a safe place to be. Canada geese should learn. It's not a safe place to be around people. Coyotes should learn. It's not a safe place to live in urban areas. And I think in the long run, there'd be fewer animals killed, trapped and euthanized, hit by cars with broken legs and, you know, these sorts of things. And a bear that ends up how its cubs get killed because it was, def- you know, a bear was defending it. I, I just animals paid the ultimate price in a lot of this, a lot of these cases. This is a case with this disease that someday a person might pay the ultimate price for living in close, close contact with wildlife. But uh, I know wildlife are being squeezed on the landscape, but you know, the core of our big populated areas are not the best place for animals and people to live. And there's a point where I think that the idea of coexistence is not the best thing for wildlife or for people. So should coyotes be actively trapped and removed from somewhere like Edmonton that has this disease that could get pretty serious if it was passed on? Uh, Just think about a kid, you know, that ends up getting this thing, you know, could, could be pretty serious pretty quick. Let me know your thoughts. What should we do with coyotes in urban areas? You know, I know what folks are saying, well, this is how we take care of them in rural areas if they come around too often or, or threaten, you know, or uh, my dogs or chickens or whatever. It's like you're allowed to discharge a firearm um, in rural areas. And, you know, that's kind of how it's taken place. I live in an area where there's coyotes. Um, There's a den not far away. There's a dominant male and female. They cruise through here at nighttime hunting rabbits and deer and they generally stay away from our property because they think they know we have three dogs and it's kind of the other family's territory where we live. Never had a problem with them. I actually think they're better off to be here than not be here because I understand in coyote ecology that a dominant male and a dominant female that secure a territory and if, if that territory happens to be where your home is, they keep other coyotes out. If you were to go where I live and remove one or both of those adults, then the potential for more coyotes to come and try to occupy this vacant territory could mean that I'm pulling in juvenile and more aggressive and more competition and rogue coyotes and stuff from the outlying areas and then potentially have problems. But I think this pair, they've been here for four years, ever since I've lived here, as far as I can tell, tell, do a pretty good job at keeping the rest of the coyotes away. And they raise a litter. I think the litters disperse every year. They bugger off to find their territories. Uh, Mom and dad just stay here in the general couple square kilometers of this neighborhood and, you know, and they keep the peace. But that's not what's happening in Stanley Park and Edmonton uh, and whatnot. So um, send me some notes. What would you do? What would If you were in charge of this in Alberta or Vancouver, uh, would you have an urban trapping program to try to keep the numbers of coyotes down? Or would you push heavily towards coexistence strategies? Let me know. I'm interested.
Now here is a hunter education class that's the whale of all hunting ed courses that I've ever seen. So in Rankin Inlet in Nunavut, in Canada's Arctic, uh, I think around the end of August, there were six people that went through a four-day whale hunting course. <laughs> so uh, it was mostly a, a land-based course, um, giving all the fundamentals about boats and gun safety and what you would pack on a whale hunting trip, uh, as well as food preparation for a hunting trip as well as preserving whale meat and whale fat in traditional Inuit uh, ways uh, or in efficient uh, ways in, in the Arctic now. So uh, quite, I, I think they, if I remember reading the story, they did do some ocean trips because I remember reading one of them said they didn't catch a whale during the course. Um, but it was the, the focus was, you know, um, teaching all of these fundamentals uh, on land to uh six new hunters in uh in the Rankin Inlet area so I'm like wow that would be quite the quite the hunter ed course I'd love to just sit in on that you know and 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 learn and see compare and contrast that with the hunter ed course that that I'm familiar with so one of the things they do uh was teaching people how to um preserve uh whale blubber uh, and if you're interested, it looks like a typical um, pickling method that we might use for sausages, pickled sausages or pickled onions, white vinegar, sugar, bay leaves, cloves, mustard seed, pepper, allspice, and pickling uh, spice, as well as the Mac Pack, the whale blubber. And I uh, saw some pictures of it in the jars, uh, all uh, cured up. Sounds like it might actually be pretty good with a cold beer on a hot summer day. Back to Alberta, Northern Alberta, bison hunting. So bison hunting in the various management units in Northern Alberta, from what I understand, have been paused since 2018. In Canada, there is about 8,500 wood bison across a dozen free-ranging populations uh, between Northern BC, Northern Alberta, uh, Northwest Territories, and the Yukon. In a particular herd, uh, about 700 kilometers north of Edmonton, um, the government has opened up a hunt. There were applications for non-indigenous resident hunters of Alberta to apply. I think the deadline was a couple of days ago on December or September 22nd was when those closed. So the, um, the specific herd that they're looking at hunting there is the Hazama bison herd. Now this bison herd, uh, like I said, there's eight, they're wood bison. There's 8,500 wood bison across, um, the, the provinces and territories in Western Canada. This particular herd, the Hazama herd, is growing to 525 animals, which government officials say now reaches the level that can support a bison hunt. Now, that's a bit controversial with the Diné First Nation. They're saying no to the bison hunt. 
they're saying in a, an agreement that was developed with the government of Alberta in 1985 said that the target for a huntable population was a thousand animals. And so that was 40 years ago that that agreement and that target of a thousand for a huntable population uh, was set. The herd is about half, 525 animals, 40 years later than the original target. Uh, biologists and wildlife managers in the government of Alberta said that's good and they were opening up a hunt. Uh, First Nations are not in favor of that hunt opening up and they're not in favor of the allocation of 50% of the permits to Dineta First Nations and 50% to Alberta residents. They said the Alberta government is not keeping their agreement on a 50-50 split. I don't know what the split is. Um, the source that I looked at didn't say what the actual split was that was, was proposed. Now the province is saying that on the 3rd of August of this year, the chief and council of the Dineta, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. If not, tell me what the correct pronunciation there is. That the chief and council agreed to support the 2023-2024 Hazama bison hunt and the allocation process and the method of distributing the licenses. So there's a bit of disagreement, I guess, between what the government is saying that they worked with chief and council and other spokesmen for the nation. You know, they, everybody seems to have a slightly different perspective on, on the Hazama bison herd. So government wildlife managers in Alberta are saying that they need to manage the Hazama bison herd between about four to 600 animals. Hazama bison are disease-free, so they don't have um, the two um, TB and the other bovine disease that the bison get from cattle, and then they can transfer it back to cattle, which is the controversy between the ranching community and free-ranging bison herds. We see that in Yellowstone when they leave, then they shoot them as they leave the park because ranchers don't want um, the bovine tuberculosis or, or TB to be transmitted from the bison to the cattle. The bison originally got it from cattle. So in the case of the Hazama bison herd, they're disease free, but if their numbers are allowed to grow too much, they're like an isolated little population. And the next population, you know, is like, let's say way over by wood, Wood Bison uh, Provincial Park. They're not disease free. So if the Hazama herd grows and animals start going like, whoa, there's a lot of bison here in my my herd. I'm going to go for a big walkabout and see if I can find some other bison to mingle with. Then you get animals expanding their ranges, the population grows and you get disease free animals bumping into disease herds and then getting the disease and then wandering back because they wanted to go back home. So part of the strategy here is to keep the Hazama bison herd between four to 600 animals and not allow them to reach that original estimate of a thousand, which was, uh, like I said, was the projected target for a huntable population uh, four decades ago. So um, interesting, interesting situation with the bison herd. Makes sense. 
you know, to manage the herd, open it up to hunting, split the allocation between indigenous and non-indigenous hunters. But there is some disagreement about when the hunt should actually take place and who gets what allocation. In Manitoba, um, generally, in the whole, across the entire government ministry that manages conservation, over the last 20 years, Manitoba's Conservation Department, which is now called Environment and Climate Department, 20 years ago, they had more than 1,300 staff. That has dropped by 75% to just 331 full-time people working in the field of conservation in Manitoba. And currently, 20% of the positions, of the 331 positions, aren't filled. So there's even less than 331 people working in the conservation departments in Manitoba. And apparently, like when I looked at the graph, this is the same thing I've seen in other, especially in BC, over the last 40 years, every government in power, regardless of their political affiliation, is slowly downsizing the ministries that oversee um, land, water, and habitat. We just see these less and less and less people, less and less budget. Uh, BC, it's a pretty significant drop over the last 40 years. It was, it was on the same downward trend in Manitoba over the last 40 years. Each successive government seems to be just putting less and less priority and emphasis on the ministries that are taking care of the land. But in 2016, there's this huge slash of positions and people and budgets and stuff in the conservation department in Manitoba. And um, well, starting in 2017, 2016 is when the current government took over in Manitoba. So um, the rhetoric that I'm seeing about it is, you know, they're they're pointing to the one particular government party that's in power in Manitoba right now for basically just, you know, for better sense of the word gutting, you know, the conservation ministries in Manitoba. So pretty disheartening when you see governments more and more putting less and less back into the land uh, that's supporting people in the resource industries as well as in, you know, fishing and hunting and trapping that you and I like to do and where we get our food from. Now, BC had a bad fire season, worst on record, I think was the where it all landed. Um, so in all of this, everything that happened, homes were lost, you know, fires, burn wildlife habitat, you know, all, all types of things. I wasn't expecting to read this story but the executive director of the Invasive Species, Species Council of British Columbia, Gail Wallen, I know her, I've worked with her, uh, was in the newspaper recently talking about pigs that have escaped pens because of the wildfires. Um, fences were damaged, these sorts of things burning into rural areas or acreage farms or whatnot. She said, we don't know how many pigs got out, we don't know how many have 
are still out there that owners weren't able to capture and and get back into uh, penned operations. And so there's a concern that these pigs are going to become feral on the landscape. In uh, in the article I read, um, Executive Director Gail Wallen was saying like these pigs, once they go feral, they start to change. Um, they become more aggressive. They start to um, revert back into some of the actual physical characteristics of their ancestors being the Europe, European um, Eurasian wild boar. Um, their tusks start to develop a little bit more. They get a little bit more hairy. Uh, other stories I've covered on this that domestic pigs can then, if, like in Saskatchewan and stuff that have come across from escaped pure Eurasian wild boar, they interbreed. So you get these domestic pigs, which are bred to be huge, to produce lots of meat, interbreed with these European Eurasian wild boars uh, and form these hybrids, which got like the best of both worlds of being a humongous invasive pig that rototills up the landscape and wrecks agriculture areas and tears up riparian areas and eats ducks and baby fawns and all kinds of stuff. I've seen photographs of these wild pigs running through the forest with like a newborn whitetail fawn in its mouth. They just vacuum up and kill everything they come across. So that's why they're bad. One of the things, and this is extremely controversial in Canada, it is in the U.S., authorities and scientists and managers actually advocate for people not to target hunting wild pigs if you see them, to report them. It is legal to hunt feral pigs in BC. It is legal in Alberta. In fact, they had a bounty in Alberta. But they've shown that it is not an effective, hunting is not an effective way of dealing with wild pigs. In fact, Dr. Ryan Brook, who's like Canada's authority on invasive wild pigs, uh, had him on the podcast years ago, has actually said, when you look at the problem of escaped pigs anywhere into the wild, anywhere in the world, that hunting them has done nothing but actually make the problem worse because it tends to drive uh, wild pig populations further away from people. So it disperses them on the landscape. It breaks groups of wild pigs up and then they multiply more. And then they end up becoming more nocturnal when they're pressured by hunting. So all of these things then make it worse when um, a jurisdiction actually gets a shit together and wants to go in and, and eradicate them when they've been hunted. Um, that tends to make the problem of scooping up wild pigs quickly and efficiently way harder. Now, years ago when we had Dr. Ryan Brook on the podcast, he did say, that if you're out and about and you do see a lone wild pig all by itself, not a family unit, which are the bad ones to put the pressure on by shooting at them or shooting one out of a group or whatever, a lone wild pig is most often going to be a male that's traveling the landscape, looking for sounders and looking for females to breed with. If you were to shoot a lone pig cruising across the field, there's most likely you're going to get yourself some pig meat and you're not going to uh, make the situation known by the rest of the herd because it's by itself uh, that 
precipitates all these other problems I've been talking about for invasive pig management. So, um, so anyways, I guess if you're out and about, you know, and you see a lone pig, seems not too bad. But to hear, you know, stories of like, oh, there's a dozen or 20 or 40 in an area and, you know, go in and, and a group of people and try to hunt and pressure them, that's where the experts are saying you're kind of making the problem worse. However, nobody's actually really effectively dealing with this across Canada anyways. So when we say we're making the problem worse, there's not a tremendous amount of active Wild pig removal, Alberta is one of the places that's actually doing trapping, at least they were, um, trying to remove entire groups of pigs. They were a bit more proactive than we've seen in other places in the province. Ontario recently made announcements about a year, year and a half ago, that you can't hunt feral wild pigs in uh, Ontario. And they're just allowing... Um, the experts to try to trap them and removed that um, confounding factor of of wild pig problems and allowing hunting. So quite a different approach all across uh, Canada on the invasive pigs. But uh, there was concerns expressed here in BC because of the fires and the fires damaging fences and pigs getting free that there may be ones out there that just haven't been recaptured. So hopefully they don't become the epicenter for more of them in BC. I know there are hunters out there that said, bring them on. We'd love to have something to hunt and hunting wild pigs would be kind of cool. If there's, we don't get moose permits, then let us hunt wild pigs. Some hunters don't care whether it's a feral or wild animal or what its implications of it is on the landscape. If it's something they can hunt and eat, that's all they want. So different perspectives all over the country. Polar bears. So recently the Ontario court fined a taxidermist in Ontario $60,000 on September 12th. Uh, the taxidermist pled guilty to two counts of violating federal laws aimed at protecting wild animals. It's a case that started back in 2018 where federal wildlife officials were looking at some inconsistencies in export documentation of uh, hides from polar bears going to China, from Canada to China. So in this case, the taxidermist had two polar bear hides and one mount uh, from polar bears that came from Nunavut and they were exporting them to China, uh, to a buyer, apparently probably not using all of the right paperwork. They were not being lawfully exported uh, to China. And so the person was caught by federal wildlife officials, charged $60,000. Now, the three polar bears that were part of this um, violation, they were legally harvested in Nunavut. So no hunting laws were broken in the killing of the polar bears by hunters in Nunavut. Those three polar bear were lawfully exported out of Nunavut into Ontario. So everything from the hunter perspective, the polar bears were lawfully taken and lawfully exported. It's not until they got into the hands of the taxidermist, they wanted to 
um, not do things properly with the permits in exporting the the mount and the two hides to China was where uh, he got got caught and busted. So, you know, f- from the perspective of hunting and hunting polar bears, uh, you know, I'm okay with this story because like hunters weren't involved. Hunters did everything properly. They shot the bears. They're allowed to sell the, the hides. They exported them properly to a buyer. Great. This just fell on on a taxidermist that then broke the laws to try to get these out of the country uh, to China. In 2020, there were 109 permits issued to export polar bear mounts uh, or hides to be exported out of Canada. In 2021, there were 169 permits issued. It represents the legal harvesting of polar bears in Canada represents, uh, I think I read 1% of the entire population of polar bears are hunted in Canada. The population is about 16,000 of which Canada has two thirds of the world's polar bear population. And they harvest about 1% of those animals. Uh, And out of that 1%, around 100 to 170 get exported out of the country. Now, here is a case where hunters were actually charged. They screwed up. They did illegal stuff. And resource officers caught them. It's in Ontario. Four hunters were fined a total of $16,000. They received a one-year license suspension. Um, so contrary to the commercial fishing license where those commercial license holders were only restricted for the first two weeks of the commercial fishing season, these hunters actually had their licenses suspended for uh, a one year. There were a number of illegal, um, offenses around, uh, these charges. It was to do with a moose that was harvested way back in 2018, which shows you how tough these wildlife poaching cases are to go from, from the initial, you know, caught people, secured the evidence to being in front of a judge, delivering a verdict and charging people and taking their hunting licenses away from 2018 to 2023. That's how long it takes these cases to get through the, the, the legal system, poaching cases. So, um, it was 2018, it was a moose that didn't have a proper tag and the evidence of sex was not left on the moose. So apparently there was also, um, the individuals that were charged were not being upfront with the conservation officers when they were caught, they were giving, uh, misleading, uh, statements and false information, which was making the conservation officers job of putting the case together more difficult they were able to sift through all of the the rhetoric, uh, got right down to it, and a judge upheld the work that the conservation officers did in Ontario to uh, $16,000 levied against four hunters. You know, I, I, I had to ask some people about, should I cover these stories of hunters being charged with poaching offenses? And um, overwhelmingly, people said, yes, go ahead, cover the stories, talk about them, give the details. Because at the end of the day, this stuff pisses hunters off when people from our own community steal 
from the resource by poaching. And hunters are glad they get caught. They're glad they get charged. They're glad to see hunting licenses suspended and these people being taken out of uh, the arena of hunting. And all of the good hunters that I know support and stand behind what conservation officers are trying to do every day. And when they can get a conviction, even if it takes six years or whatever that this one did to go from, um, from field charges to a court conviction, um, hunters seem to support the work that conservation officers do. They're most often the eyes and ears of seeing things first and reporting it. And hunters are actually the ones that, that, you know, put conservation officers onto these things that end up these convictions. So I, hopefully you feel the same way that, um, hearing about these stories of hunters getting charged with poaching convictions, wherever it happens is not a, Oh God, there's like another one that makes hunting look bad. And, and you're seeing it going good, catch the buggers in our hunting community that are there and charge them and take their hunting licenses away. And I'm sure you're probably saying they should get more than a one year suspension, lifetime, you know, hunting ban, whatever. So let me know, let me know what your thoughts are about covering these poaching stories in Canada. Um, are you generally seeing them, you know, from the perspective of going good, these people are being caught and charged and their hunting license is taken away. Or are you like, oh man, it's just like, that sure makes us look bad. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know your perspectives. I value all perspectives. That was a big episode where there was a lot going on. So, uh, yeah, write me Mark at bloodorigins.com. And let me know about any stories that you are seeing out there in the country. Let me know about them. The one about the bear attack in Osoyoos, the leading story was literally came in from a follower on a text message an hour or so before I recorded this, uh, the session. I had not seen it in my newsfeed. So thank you. Uh, as well, email me uh, any thoughts or engage with me on Instagram when the story goes up what um what your thoughts are on any of these stories or my take on them so particular interest is this whole thing about whether we should have special urban trapping programs for coyotes uh, especially in alberta especially in the edmonton area uh, because of the ae disease if you know the proper pronunciation to the things i goofed up on here today uh, as well let me know uh, Love hearing from all of you. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.